Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Diane Negra, author of the book Shadow of a Doubt, published in 2021 by Auteur. Diane is professor of film studies and screen culture at University College Dublin and is a lifelong fan of Hitchcock's 1943 movie, often listed as his favorite. In her close reading of the film, Diane examines how Hitchcock presented what seemed like a typical family, but with underlying secrets and issues. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Diane Negra. Welcome, Diane. Good morning, Joel. I am speaking to Diane Negra, author of the book Shadow of a Doubt. Um published last year, 2021, by Auteur Books. Um, I am not a stranger to Alfred Hitchcock interviews. Um, I've done at least three myself over the last couple years with authors. So obviously, and one of the books started with um, the statement, why do we need another Alfred Hitchcock book? And that, and as I said, that was three books ago. So you can imagine that uh, seeing anything related to Alfred Hitchcock is interesting to me. And it gave me a chance to revisit the film at the same time. But before we go into detail, though, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, you are actually, your college, the University College of Dublin, um, and you've been there quite a while, I, th- I think, from reading everything. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your background as we were talking beforehand. You actually were born in the United States. but um, And so let's talk about how you, first off, education and why you decided that film was something that you were going to want to study. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I did all of my education in the United States. And you're right that I am uh, born a U.S. citizen. I'm now a dual citizen uh, of Ireland and the the U.S. Um, And I did my Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Austin, which was where this film sort of first came into my radar. I had the great 
good fortune as a graduate student to be a teaching assistant for Tom Schatz and um, recently retired faculty member from that department. And, uh, you know, just just found it a compelling film, I, I think, you know, to put it very simply. And I've been delighted over the years and I've taught the film very widely by how many students seem to hold that opinion. And um, I think one of my incentives for doing a book on this Hitchcock film is just that that sense of, of pedagogical uh, pleasure in showing it to students and, and finding that they found it extremely interesting as well. Um, the book is designed to showcase the, the, the sort of um, the, the usefulness of close reading uh, when it comes to popular film, I think with Hitchcock films as much as any others that you, that you could ever name. And, uh, you know, I road tested a lot of the arguments in this book uh, in many places. And I, I, I've taught Shadow of a Doubt in Texas. I've taught it in the UK. I've taught it in Ireland. I've taught it in Poland. I've taught it um, maybe most recently uh, as a visiting uh, scholar in Norway, when I taught it to a group of first year students and their extraordinary interest and, and uh, ability to pick out rich details in the movie really made me feel, um, you know, it really cemented my desire to do this book. So Shadow of the Doubt, of a Doubt, excuse me, is one of Hitchcock's earliest um, American films. Um, yes. Saboteur was, or I keep losing track because he has one called Sabotage and one that's called Saboteur, but um, yeah. just was right before this. And this film, even though it was filmed during World War the World War II era, there really isn't anything related to the war as part of it, um, which is neither here nor there that his previous film obviously was. Um, but what I found so interesting in my f recent reviewing of the film is how American it is. Even though we obviously know that he's from Britain and has only had only been in the United States for a reasonably short time, it's a very American type film, and I'd be interested to know in your studies and your the way you've reviewed it with all over the world whether you have uh, found that uh, people who watch it can pick up on that aspect. I think they do, and I I think that. You're right that this is a film made at a, a fairly transitional point in Hitchcock's adjustment to the United States. Certainly, it's one of my arguments in this book that, that the power and, and complexity of the film is strongly rooted in, its, in what it understands about American family life, about American communities. I'm, I'm not the first person to say so, right? Robin Wood says this decades ago, but I hope I've expanded um, a bit on what he and others have, have put across about Shadow. But yeah, I, I think the texture of the film, it's setting in Santa Rosa, um, as we've come to expect with Hitchcock, it's, it's just dead on casting. The fact that um, a, a key role in the film was actually cast uh, by a young amateur um, girl in Santa Rosa through an open casting call gives it a kind of sense of, of, of verisimilitude and aptness that I think really um, you know, gives us gives us a great sense of, of of the film getting a lot of things right. The feeling of the film is is, is very powerful and very um, real. I think to a lot of, of of viewers, even many decades after it was made. I want to come back though to something that you said almost in passing, Joel, which is that the film isn't. Um, it's not, it presents to us, having been made in 1943, we might expect more of a kind of emphatic wartime ethos. And 
my own feeling about that has slightly changed over time. And I, I, I somewhat to my chagrin, I think. Now, I think the way I used to talk about the film with students is I would sort of say, isn't it rather remarkable that we have so few references to that, that to the wartime setting? And the, there are one or two fairly important exceptions to that. The Till Two Bar scene is certainly one. But I sort of changed my mind over time and began to feel that even though the film doesn't layer on numerous references to the wartime context, I think in very subtle, uh, trenchant ways, it's highly aware of that context. And I, when I say that, I mean that there are more mise-en-scene references um, in public places like the library and the bank that characters go to in Shadow of a Doubt than we might at first assume. But more than that, I think the film invites us, for example, to speculate on the positioning of a character like Uncle Charles, who is traveling around and yet appears to be a very much an able-bodied man within the kind of the conscript, conscription profile. Why is this man not um, playing any part in the war effort is a question that I think um, lurks beneath the surface of Shadow of a Doubt. So I, I, I partly still agree with you, Joel, but I also have somewhat changed my mind that the film is more attentive to its wartime context than it might have at first appear. So what made you decide in general that, because uh, looking through what you've written, you tend to write on a lot of different topics, not just film related, but um, you also decided that this was a book you wanted to write about a specific film, where most of your other writing, particularly the long, longer form, are more about topics and concepts as opposed to specific films. Was it just a matter that you decided and when you started to write the book that it was a good time to do it? Um, no, in fact, the opposite. Uh, and the story of how this book came into existence is, is a kind of a strange one because um, you're right that, that I haven't done any single film studies uh, before this one. Uh, although it, it very much reflects my pedagogy in all kinds of ways. As I said before, I, I think close reading to me is, is, is valuable and important and, and, and really at the heart of a lot of things that I do. Um, when I was working in the UK uh, at, at around 2007, 2008, I began to line this book up as my next, next project and um, things changed. And I was offered uh, a chair at University College Dublin and I had close uh, ties of various kinds to Ireland. And uh, when I was offered that job, obviously, I, I had an international relocation to make and, and a new department that I was um, chairing. I wound up being in the, that chair uh, role for 10 years. And so I had had a British Academy uh, grant to go to uh, LA and do some of the archival work that feeds into this book. And then everything kind of went on pause. I had numerous other projects, I had various other commitments. And um, by the time I had a sabbatical to work on the book, uh, you know, 10 years had gone by. And, and I'm not usually like this, it's very unusual for me. And um, so I was working on it in 2018 and 19. But during that time, I also did a guest professorship in Berlin and another in uh, Jerusalem and was traveling around quite a lot. A big portion of this book was written while I was in New Orleans. And the thing that really pushed the book over the finish line, um, strangely enough, was the COVID pandemic because... I sort of um, figured that might have been where we were heading for because of the yeah, date the book came strangely, out. strangely, you know, well, I came back from sabbatical and this is, I think, a pretty frequent, um, you know, thing to occur is that your book isn't quite finished. And then when the pandemic sort of stopped everything in its tracks, I just hunkered down in the spring of 
2020 and, and finished the book rather quickly in about three months. So it's a funny story of you know, I don't, I can't recall another book like this where I was really going over notes I'd made in an archive, you know, 12 years before uh, when I was writing it. And of course, one of, one of the things that's interesting of it compared to your other writing is this one, because you focus on, on a single film and a film of particular interest, it, it, it definitely has a, that feel of a labor of love, of, excuse me, a labor of love. Uh, I'm assuming that's true, but, uh, is, uh, yeah. to, to come up to something. So I guess my next question related to this is where did, uh, you, when did Hitchcock first appear on your radar when you were first watching film? Well, in graduate school in Austin, I think it's fair to say. And, and, and because I was uh, in the position for the first time there of being involved in the teaching and the delivery of a course on Hitchcock um, and seeing how effective um, that could be with students. I think that was that was very much the um, the the sort of the bedrock for for the what later became this book. But I had kept Shadow of a Doubt in my teaching rotation in lots of other contexts. I used to teach a class called Narrative Strategies, for example, and I taught it there. And I, I would reference it if I'm teaching, you know, 1940s cinema. It would come up a lot. Um, I teach another course called Chick Flicks: Women in Hollywood Storytelling, and uh, I teach Rebecca on that that course but i talk a little bit about the female gothic in general and about the important differences between those gothics that rebut the female protagonist's um, suspicions and those that confirm them and so i think the film kept sneaking into my syllabi wherever i could um you know reasonably place it and it yeah it is a labor of love it, shadow of a doubt is my favorite film um I, it's a film who's whose wonderful, marvelous, you know, complexity um, doesn't leave you. It doesn't have left me. Um, and, and that's, you know, for those of us who work in this profession, I think that's one of the great, you know, joys and delights. Although having said that, I, I've learned over the years, I think most of, of my colleagues in film studies would, would say the same is that you have to be awfully careful when you're teaching films you love, right? Because if, you're, if your students don't love the film, you tend to be fairly dismayed and fairly crushed. So in some ways, it's easier to teach films that you don't love. And that's probably the majority of my teaching is films that I'm very concerned about in terms of their ideological um, machinations and things like this. But, but Shadow is, is certainly an exception. Yeah, having talked to many film professors i know film you have to be careful with any film but especially in these days where um you can't you have to be careful for example when you show birth of a nation that it's clear that you're not mm -hmm. trying to say that uh, you agree with the film you're just talking about the film's abilities and, and its greatness as a film no matter what the topic is but uh same thing i could imagine that like i i've taught history and every once in a while i i would have I, in a live classroom i would throw a document a specific documentary or a section that i really enjoyed and i was sitting there watching it once and i looked up and everybody wasn't paying attention to it at all so obviously right, i was right. i was letting my own personal interest or, or feeling get in the way a little bit there so yeah um obviously Hitchcock, as, as you've pointed out, has been a major part of, of your personal life as far as filmmaking, film watching is concerned. So it seems great that if you were going to do a film on, a, on Hitchcock and you didn't decided to just do a single film, this was the logical one to do. Um, what kind of uh, research did you do? I mean, obviously you have an incredible... I mean, the book itself is reasonably short, and yet 
your your notes and your bibliography is just so extensive and it's great in that sense because not only do you point out to a number of articles and, and other sources um, that you mentioned, but you talked about being in LA for some of your research. So, what did yeah. you? Uh, what kind of sources did you? Were you able to get access to? Well, I hope that the book is as complete as it possibly could be on its publication uh, a little over a year ago, uh, as far as as uh, scholarship that that treats. Shadow of a Doubt specifically, or that treats Hitchcock or the period or the war film or the female Gothic or the film noir, um, you know, that's that's really important to me. And as I think you can clearly see that the book was really shaped to be a teaching resource. And that's why it has the structure that it has with this kind of extended description um, of plot events that kind of kick it off before I do any real analytical work. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, I did a lot of research in the Academy Library in Los Angeles, and I was looking in, in, in production files on the film and the Hitchcock uh, papers that they hold there. Um, I mean, I was struck, I mean, this is a feminist account um, of, of this film and its other things as well. But, you know, I was very aware, and I try to speak to this early in the book, because with this film, as with so many of his others, you know, we say Hitchcock, but we should really be acknowledging people like, you know, Alma Reville, in this case, Sally Benson. So there were other, you know, women whose, um, whose, whose production roles are harder to tease out historically because they don't have named collections in our Academy archives, right? But I've tried to do some justice to the idea that, that, that authorship over this and, and all films is, is quite complicated and, and, and in many ways problematic. Um, but as I say, I was reading a lot over a large number of years and trying to get that balance right of, you know, let's say, for example, uh, teaching a full load of classes. And for about five years prior to this book, I was also editing a, a journal, very busy with a journal that was published eight times a year, uh, chairing a department. So, you know, quite busy, but trying to make um, judicious decisions about what I could do, let's say, in a one day a week research day and things like that. So it is tricky, I think, with, with big projects that you want to... Um, keep them going over a long period of time and set reasonable goals for yourself so that you don't get overwhelmed. But the, the archival research was done in, in Los Angeles. The other research was done in, in various libraries, including my own library at UCD in Dublin. I asked, one of the reasons I always ask that question is because a lot of our listeners are academics or and or writers themselves. And I always like the idea of trying to give people a sense of somebody's writing uh, process and research process because people can always get pointers and ideas and I can see how um, from like I said before from looking at the extensive notes and bibliography the results of the years obviously that you did in research for this book yeah you know it, I, I completely take that point that it, the, the struggle to sort of stay research active while serving and teaching in administrative roles is, is a complicated, you know, kind of ongoing one. Um, in, in the last years that I was working on this book, prior to the pandemic, um, I did a lot of work on it in the library of the Royal Irish Academy. I was elected to membership of that library. And, and what I found, and I, this might be useful to listeners, I hope it is, is that the way that we live now and the, the, the kind of the encroachments of digital culture, I found it very useful to try to uh, isolate myself in spaces where I could control the environment a bit more. And in the Royal Irish Academy, which is a place where quiet is strictly maintained and, you know, 
these places are very hard to access now. There aren't that many of them. When I go into my office on campus, you know, people come and find me. I have to do things. You know, I'm getting drawn into all kinds of university business. So if I could have that one week in the Royal Irish Academy where I could turn my phone off, and indeed I was obliged to turn my phone off, um, I, I kind of cultivated a, a kind of a you know, a buffer zone in which the book was going to be, you know, the only thing. And and it just strikes me that we have to go to greater and greater lengths to engineer um, our working spaces because, because you know, largely because of we're so technologized. Yeah, well, that's, that's it. I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword because, frankly, many of the sources that you used were digital, were, you know, were accessed digitally where, you know, 20 years ago that would virtually be impossible. But... You still have to be, It's it gets to the point of almost the overload of information can be just as bad. Yeah, although I mean, I think a lot of this book I was researched in a more conventional way. It was really only the last bits uh, and during the pandemic most particularly that, that so much of the research went digital. But I am still very much, and I encourage my, my graduate students to be like this as well. I am a library user. I read books. I do not, I, I try to be, I, obviously, I do read online, but I try to keep that to as, as strict a minimum as possible. Um, in the pandemic, you know, there were several colleagues, three who I can think of, I believe I acknowledge them all um, in the book's acknowledgement section, but where I simply had no access to a library and wrote to a colleague and said, I, you know, I would really like to look at your book. Is there any way you could send me an electronic copy? And they did. So people were very kind and generous that way. I know from for us at the New Books Network, we, two years ago or three years ago, it was not unusual that we regularly worked with paper copies of books, even though I was always one of those folks who said, well, electronic copy is good enough for me because all, you know, I don't need to keep a copy. It's more of a matter of making sure I understand. But now just about every publisher has gone electronic just because the convenience and also costs, obviously. But uh, so... Shadow of a Doubt, where this is obviously, like we say, 1940s. Um, the first part of the book, you do a close synopsis of the film. Instead, of, It's not just a straight plot uh, listing, but you also get into aspects very quickly of, of analysis as part of it, even though you have, then have a later section, which is all analysis. But um, how, in, in, in Hitchcock's, we know, okay, we have a, one of his regular situations, which is somebody who might or might not have committed a crime or might or might not right. be have issues. Um, and in this particular case, and of course, I'm assuming anybody that's listening to this has already seen the film, so we're not going to worry about that, um, is that uh, we find out by the end of the film that he actually did it. Um, but yeah. it's so this, this is a gothic that, that that winds up, you know, confirming the heroine's suspicions rather than you know critiquing them. Right, and some of his other films, uh, usually, especially as he gets farther along, uh, it turns out in many cases they didn't do it or weren't uh, a spy or anything like that. And then also the other issue that often comes up is occasionally he leaves it open to question. But in this case, um you know, the decision was made that we're going to come right out and say, yep. And even though there's that period towards the end where you start to, there's a possibility he didn't. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, how is this, did you see in comparison to other films, is is this unusual for Hitchcock to be this 
uh, specific in, in his plotting? Well, there are a couple of things that make this film stand out in Hitchcock's body of work. And, and one is the, the, the close perspectival uh, centrality the film gives of, of a teenage girl, Charlie Newton, played wonderfully by Teresa Wright. And um, so, so we're already in a slightly different place because of that. And, and, and the arrival of Uncle Charles into the Newton home, which is, of course, the, the sort of the precipitating event um, of, of Shadow of a Doubt, does all kinds of complex work but i think that the, the realization that we have that that uncle charles is the merry widow murderer he's uh murdered three women before he arrives back at his his sister's uh kind of you know ideal ideal seeming home in in california um but i think what 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 the film sort of zeroes in on quite quickly is the question of why charles kills and 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 it never pins down the the exact nature of his um, there's a there's a cryptic reference to a boyhood injury, uh, but I, I I tend to read that as being quite a superficial and not persuasive account uh, of Charles's misogyny. Charles hates rich middle aged women, and he murders them because he's offended by their very existence. And so we we also come to find out that he is highly nostalgic, right? There's a signature musical theme that recurs across Shadow of a Doubt, the, the Merry Widow Waltz. And it evokes, it's accompanied by an image of waltzing couples from what appears to be the 1800s. And Charles is someone who reveres the past. He says to his niece at one point, um, you know, everybody was sweet and pretty then, you know, the whole world. And, and this kind of contempt and disgust he has for the, the present moment, is matched by this longing he seems to have for the past. So I'm inclined to read Charles as a figure who is his his murderous activities have a great deal to do with his relationships to the women in his own family of origin. And I think the complexity or part of the complexity of the film arises when we realize that he doesn't want things to change in the family of origin. He cannot accept the, the kind of the reality that um, the process of coming into adulthood, and I'm sorry for the disruptions in the back, um, involves making new families and new connections. And something about that is at the heart of why he finds unpartnered women who have failed to move through or, or defying a trajectory of what women's lives are supposed to be like, he's profoundly offended by them. And then there's another question of, you know, to what extent Charles is the product of this family that sees itself in quite idealistic terms, but to, to what extent is his murderous rage an exact uh, outcome of his upbringing? And this then raises a much bigger set of questions, and, and not just in this film, but in other Hitchcock films too, of course, about you know to what extent the family um, is the, the, the ultimate sort of wellspring for uh, antisocial, murderous, uh, often misogynistic feeling. And of course, one of the other interesting things is that in this case, um, Charlie, the niece, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, actually has power, especially at the end. I mean, she ends up yeah. uh, winning out, so to speak. She was able to defeat him on the train when um, it's not something that you would automatically assume. And sometimes with Hitchcock, the role of women can be... Um, what word do I want to use? Complicated. 
Uh, but in this yeah. particular case, at least, and I think this may go back to what you were saying about the, the women who were involved in the production and the writing, um, had some control over this or had some, not control, that's not a good word, but, uh, had some, uh, ability to affect this. I don't know. Um, but, but I think I, I'm inclined to think, and, and this, this might be something I would say provocatively to students when I teach the film is, is can Shadow of a Doubt be understood in some ways as, as a piece of feminist Hitchcock, right? Is that not a total contradiction in terms? I don't think it has to be. And I think that, um, you know, that the fact that, that uh, in a manner that is more typical of later horror films, in the way that, for example, Carol Clover has written uh, about the final girl in slasher films, uh, Charlie Newton very improbably in high heels on a moving train, uh, given that her uncle is far taller and seemingly stronger than she is, uh, is, is, is narrowly able to push him off train. Um, but, but I think what's, what's very interesting about the closure in, in, in Shadow of a Doubt is how ideologically unsettled it is. And we do not, even though the film closes with the image of, of a couple, right, which, uh, you know, Charlie and the man we presume is going to be her husband, Jack Graham, the FBI agent who's been looking for the Mary Widow murderer through most of the film, there is nothing triumphant about it. There is nothing reassuring about it. And notably, I'm not the first person to say this, but I think it's an important point. Charlie, at that at that stage of the movie, speaks in the dull, lifeless, monotonous tone that we have previously associated with her uncle. So even though Uncle Charles has been killed off, it may be that his worldview uh, lives on. And so the disenchantment with family life, with, with small town values, you know, all of these kinds of things that lingers is the film's last idea. So even though I do see um, Charlie Newton as having an unusual level of agency, perhaps especially in comparison to other Hitchcock heroines, uh, the stress that's placed on, on, on the, the conclusion is really on, you know, a Pandora's box uh, kind of kind of outcome in which what she has learned through the process of dealing with her uncle to, to some extent she has to become uh, she has to be in alignment with him in order to defeat him right so it's significant that she puts the ring he gives her back on uh, in in, in a, a key scene close to the end of the film so I, I, my sense is that Charles is is physically exterminated from the world of the film but his all that he expresses about nihilism and rage and despair very much lives on i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and of course in a way he didn't win obviously but he leaves the world 
considered as, as in a in a in a negative i mean in the sense that the people are all upset that he's dead because they didn't know his background they only knew him from right. some off-scene speech that he supposedly gave that we don't know anything about specifically but suddenly the whole yeah. town is upset that he died and and yeah. yet and and that is it's part of it i think that helps with that last scene with with charlie Definitely. is that they're all upset that he that he died however he died uh, uh, because they don't know the truth and charlie decides right, not right. to tell the, you know tell anybody else they put him and her and the fbi agent both decide we'll just let it alone and yet um it helps to to point out that the the not hypocrisy but certainly the idea that uh he, everybody thinks he was uh, a great guy but the people who know he wasn't decide to stay silent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and the fact that the film closes with, with a funeral that's attended by seemingly everybody in Santa Rosa of a man who was a serial killer of women um, is also attributed to the fact that, that Charles has, has spread his money around while he was in town. He's made large charitable donations. He's become one of the bank's largest customers and it lingers outside of the boundaries of the, the story world um, of the film, but, but presumably uh, the Newtons are coming into some money themselves upon, upon this uncle's death. So it really raises some very bitter uh, and cynical questions about, you know, the value of people in families and in communities. And, you know, this isn't the first time, by the way, that, that Charles is celebrated by representatives of this, this idealized town. Another rich moment comes when the crossing guard, Mr. Norton, um, is just ever so delighted to be introduced uh, to Uncle Charles. You know, is this, is this your uncle I've heard so much about, he says, and he's just couldn't be more delighted. And, you know, the, the sense that Charles is, is, is a favored son of Santa Rosa is a, a bitter pill to swallow at the end of this movie. And of course, the money they're all getting is ill-gotten. So it just... Uh, yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but let's let, let's now, go, you know, we're going all over the place and there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to come back to the beginning of the film, mostly because I think it it helps to, you know, we, we've talked about Charlie at the end. Now let's talk a little bit about at the beginning where obviously she's newly, you know, just graduated from high school, obviously doesn't have any kind of idea of what she wants to do, um, and is just sort of languishing in, I don't know how you would even describe it, there was just, her life at that point was just nothing. And it, it, I suspect this goes back to the comparisons we will be continue to make, but yet the town is sort of presented, the music is very light at the beginning, and we're led to believe that this is a normal, um, you know, American town uh, community. And and very quickly, though, we see as we get introduced to each member of the family that that isn't necessarily the case. Yeah, it's a wonderfully rich and layered introduction that we get there. We've previously seen Charles in a rooming house on the East Coast and their intimations of violence and criminality and even the supernatural attached to him. But by contrast, this is meant to be a mundane, uh, you know, family presentation. When we get to Santa Rosa, we have, of course, Charlie is lying on her bed in the daytime in a funk, very much in exactly the same posture and positioning as her uncle. So it's this, this what I call a thematically charged parallelism uh, structures this entire movie. And it, it might be said to begin there. Um, but yeah, we understand also that, that, a middle-class 
girl in Charlie's position um, is fairly restricted and, and that marriageability is, is the kind of key question of her life at this point. And this comes up later in the film when, when, when Jack, the FBI agent says, um, you know, to, to Charlie, all mothers lose things. One day she'll be losing you. Speaking about Emma, Charlie's mother and, and Charles's sister. And so I think that kind of sense that, that Charlie is despondent in ways she can't quite articulate at the start of the film have to do with the fact that she sees her own mother's life unfurling before her, that she will have to marry someone and keep a house and, and, and that none of this is exciting or interesting to her. And we, we, we quickly absorb the fact that Charles, the cosmopolitan, well-traveled, you know, person who, who stands out in this family as a function of very different life choices is, is um, both an aspirational figure in some ways for Charlie, but because he's male and she's female, she could never live the life he, he, she believes he's, he's living. Um, so for these reasons, I, I think the film lays out quite quickly concerns that we would today obviously recognize as feminist ones about the limitations of women's lives and the social roles that are available to them. And of course, as we've already talked about, in the end, she doesn't solve her problems in that sense, because right. by the end of the film, as you pointed out already, the assumption is she'll eventually get married and neither of them look particularly overjoyed about things. I mean, I mean, obviously she's, she, she indicates that, that, that she loves him, but uh, the FBI agent, but it's not like you point out, it's not the kind of, uh, it's not presented in the way that you might think because it just, the mundane still seems to be there. I absolutely agree. And, and I think the scene in which Jack essentially proposes to Emma in the garage uh, using dialogue that was written by the actress who plays uh, Emma uh, Newton, in fact, is quite interesting, um, you know, is, is, is a, almost a parody of, the, of a love scene. And I don't think Charlie is in any way, she recognizes Jack as a very appropriate partner, but I don't think she has any deep feelings for him. I actually think her deep feelings are her for, for her uncle. And I, this is why I think the film starts to, to, to begin to really posit very rich questions about to what extent the, the romance plot is uh, in, in Western societies has been, um, is always balancing attention between those who we think are like us and share our values and are like the people that we grew up with, et cetera, um, and, and people who seem interestingly different. Uh, and, and I think Jack is, is an absolutely, dull <laughs> character and absolutely meant to be a dull character. So this is where things get, you know, really quite complicated because of the fact that that the the most the, the romantic energy in this film is between Uncle Charles and his sister and Uncle Charles and his niece. And I think the film's struggle to account for that, it makes it very complicated and very interesting. And of course, um, Emma, the mother or sister in this case, she is yeah. presented very in a very interesting manner because uh, we get the impression that this is she's got a normal life and everything. She's got three kids and, uh, um, but she's not exactly a hundred percent there either. In the sense of uh, right. you don't get the impression she's particularly happy. Uh, him coming, him yeah. coming was the main thing that seemed to yeah. get her going. And when he says he's leaving, uh, she of course gets very at the end. She gets very upset, and she plays it. I mean, she's played very 
um, you know, in a way that she clearly isn't a happy person. I think Emma's misery, her neuroticism, her um, boredom, you know, if we can put it like that, is communicated in various ways in the film, but you've just suggested the probably the most important one, which is that having assembled a group of, of notable people, the minister, you know, people like this at her home after her brother has given a speech and it's all gone very well. And this is a moment of sort of social triumph for Emma. And, and when Charles abruptly announces seemingly out of nowhere that he's leaving the next morning, she breaks down. She, she is, she cannot even control her emotions this is a woman we understand is quite concerned with doing things in a you know in the middle class way in a proper manner she's a club woman you know and and she is weeping and no one in the room can look at her except for really her daughter and the sense that emma's misery has just been laid bare for everyone to see um it is extraordinary and that this is the last time that we see emma in the film so the choice to leave this character i'm a bit obsessed with how film characters are given closure or not, right? So I always discuss this with my students is notice which characters get closure and which are just sort of abandoned just because the plot is going a different way. Um, but Emma gets this extraordinary last moment in the movie in which her, her absolute grief at her brother's departure indicates how hollow her life is when he goes. Well, and then of course her husband and his, uh, and the neighbor, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like the husband has more, in, you know, is is closer to the not almost like it is exactly like that. They're he's actually closer to his neighbor than he is to his wife. Yeah. Um, uh, in a sense, and I, the other part I found funny was the idea that uh, they were they're true crime buffs in an era where we I didn't know. necessarily know true crime buffs existed. Clearly, they did because uh, the constant discussion of not only cases but also methods of killing and, and things like that that the two of them continue to have that every night it seems they sit around and talk about it. It's like all they needed was Reddit and they'd be able to to have their own uh, conversation at, with all with half the world. Yeah, so so the the kind of the the nature of family life and community life in, in Santa Rosa is also called into question because uh, Joe and his neighbor Herb, who's of course played by Hume Cronin, seem to spend, as you say, all of their time fantasizing ways to murder people and even to kill each other. And so there there's almost a kind of a longing for death that that, that kind of gets communicated through this. But but I think you know I'm glad you mentioned them because one of the things that makes Shadow of a Doubt such a rich text is, is how characters from the margins, even if they have only a brief amount of screen time, can be very resonant. And so I would see uh, Herb, the neighbor, who has a little bit, he's actually quite important at a later stage uh, in calling the family's attention to the fact that uh, that, that Charlie is, is uh, asphyxiating in the garage. But but, uh, you know, he, he's a character where everybody sort of sighs and rolls their eyes when he comes over, this kind of a thing. Um, but Especially the during the dinner scene later at, in the, late in the film. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that he has no savoir faire. He walks, he walks into the family's home when they're trying to eat dinner, you know, this kind of thing. But then there are other characters as well. I'm thinking about Louise Finch, who's the waitress in the Tiltu Bar. You know, and there are lots of other characters, Mr. Norton, the crossing guard, the librarian who becomes crucial in a, a key kind of scene. Um, it, it, it just feels as if 
characters who are officially supporting characters in this movie have the ability to communicate uh, something critical about their own social positioning. And, and this, I think, is one of the great rewards of the film, is noticing how small characters do important things. Well, including the younger daughter, who um, seems oh, to be the yeah. voice of reason yeah. a lot. <laughs> she seems in many ways <laughs> yeah, to be the only one that seems to be completely aware of her surroundings. Yeah, there's so much to say. And and I think that, that um, you know, Anne, the, the young uh, girl who's maybe about 12, something like that, um, is an incredibly interesting character for all sorts of reasons. And we, we could say quite a lot about the things that she gets up to in this movie. As you say, she has a habit of, of, of giving very trenchant commentary on things that are going on. Um, but, but I think one thing that stands out for me, and again, it's probably the last critical moment uh, to do with her character in the film is that when when Charlie, because of of her uncle's uh, efforts to to kill her, uh, is is discovered unconscious in the garage with the car uh, running, and she is uh, you know her her intended murderer becomes her rescuer at that moment. Charles drags her out of of the garage and lays her on the lawn, and we can't help but notice that young Anne is who's quite composed at every other stage of the film is absolutely overcome and to some extent i see a parallel there between Anne's, uh you know tears and 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 upset when she realizes that her sister has has uh, been in danger in this way and her mother's breakdown at the gym you know, which will come along just a little bit later in the film quite close to the ending um it, it seems important to me that the last uh images we have of the other two women in this household are images of breakdown and upset um, you know, but there are all kinds of ways in which small characters, Roger, uh, who is uh, Anne's brother and Charlie's brother, is also interesting in various ways. But again, I think that the film gets pitch perfect a lot of these official supporting roles uh, and, and, and produces as a result this incredibly unified uh, and, and highly functioning narrative system. And of course, if you, re- you know, there's so much, I was thinking about it as we were talking about and and then the, the younger boy it seems and i can't be sure of this obviously but it's like they were all born six years apart charlie's right. 18 <laughs> Anne's 12 and we yes. have to assume that uh roger's probably about six or seven maybe a little older but it's just it's a interesting concept of the family you know kids spread out like that not that that means anything by itself but it, it it's different almost different groups of with completely different views of of, of the world yeah, maybe so. I, I think, again, to go back to that introduction that's so so textured at the beginning of the film, when Charlie's upstairs, her, her younger siblings are downstairs, her mother comes home from work and, and notably uses the back stairs of the household so she doesn't have to interact with anybody who's down in the living room. Um, you know, there, there's a kind of a sense of, of each of them in their own separate worlds. And, and, and Anne is a bibliophile and she's, you know, very dedicated to using the library and she, she gleans wisdom from what she reads and, and she's taken a solid oath to read a certain number of books and Roger seems to quantify everything he walks home and reports how many steps it took for him to get home this kind of thing and, and meanwhile as we've spoken about Joe is is, is obsessed with true crime lore um, you know so it does, we get the impression that that on the surface this lovely family um, all seems well but that under just poke underneath that surface and they're all first of all desperately <laughs> unhappy in some ways but also that they they 
and lonely. That's right. But also that they they hang on to uh, various kinds of, of of neurotic fixations as a way of stabilizing themselves. Uh, because despite how things appear, there's a great deal of chaos and and a great deal of of um, uh, you know it, they didn't, these people don't really know each other is another way of, of of maybe describing this that what looks like the ideal family on the surface is in fact a, you know an assemblage of individuals who have little in common. Because, like you say, I, I, even the concept of having a house with two entrances with their own staircases um, it helps to, div- to to show this division or this this loneliness part, where each of them is completely on their own. Even though, in theory, yeah. they're a family, and we see them eat dinner together and everything, but there certainly isn't a lot of family act activity going on and uh they each have their own ways but there there's very little what we would call togetherness in that family well one of the things i'm trying to do in this book is is to kind of theorize the notion of family values which wasn't a term that was used in the 1940s but it's it's come into usage subsequently and i think american culture is deeply devoted to mythologizing the family as the solution for everything and uh, I think one of the things that's very rich in Shadow of a Doubt, it's, it suggests how limited and deceptive that kind of, of, of an enterprise uh, can be. So we've been obviously going through various sections, and obviously we can't reproduce the entire book, but I think we've done pretty well as far as giving people a sense of, of the film and, and what the kind of work you've done and studying it over the years. Let's talk a little bit about the film itself and it's not so much production. I mean, that kind of thing is, is not as important, but the reactions to the film, uh, it came out in the, like I say, in the middle of the war, um, did it, was it popular when it came out? I mean, I know, uh, there have been a lot of discussions as to whether it really was Hitchcock's favorite film or not, which is not that important in and of itself, but I'm just wondering, uh, how did it do when it came out? It did well, but I think to some extent, you know, and subsequently it's been, um, how should I say, sort of outclassed or overshadowed, no pun intended, uh, by some of of Hitchcock's uh, showier films, later films for the most part. Um, I think one of the things that that I that became a subject of interest for me as I was working on this book was how Shadow's popular culture afterlife is quite a bit, uh, you know, deeper and maybe longer than uh, than than we might assume. And so the last section of the book before the conclusion talks about um, films in which uh, there is a bit of shadow of a doubt shown in a film. Uh, This, for example, happens in in, in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Um, I talk about films that are obviously referring to shadow in some way. Um, Woody Allen has, I think Woody Allen is very knowledgeable about shadow of a doubt, uh, but but his film, A Rational Man is certainly in debt to shadow of a doubt in all kinds of ways. There are interesting um, moments in which, you know, in, in popular literature, for example, in which shadow of a doubt gets, gets uh, referenced, you know, there are, um, and, and more on a more apocryphal level, one of the things that, that was a source of real pleasure to me when I was working on the book, and as we've talked about, I was working on it for quite a long time, is how many people, mostly women, uh, when I mentioned that I was working on a book on Shadow of a Doubt, said, ah, oh, I love that film. 
And this gave me a strong sense that uh, the film is, is well remembered, that it was meaningful and powerful uh, for large numbers of people, as I say. And um, that was part of the reason why I wanted to write about it. And of course, one of the things that I am glad about is that Hitchcock, especially these these films that have been, you know, his later films, there's his American films, they're being very well treated by the studio who owns the rights. Because, for example, uh, Shadow of a Doubt was in the latest box set that came out in the States, at least, uh, in 4K and with all kinds of extras and things. It's just, uh, it, it was on that group. And it's just unbelievable how great the film looks. It was clearly one of those films that 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 uh, it depends a great deal on on it on its shadows and its view. You know the various ways that uh, that Hitchcock filmed things, and it just looks beautiful. Yeah, this is a great source of pleasure at a time when we're so worried about losing, you know, so many rich, you know, cinematic texts and they just aren't accessible. But yeah, we're lucky with Hitchcock that the films are, you know, kind of still in these kind of lovely, pristine conditions. And of course, you know, um, that makes them easier to teach and easier for public viewing as well. Yeah, I recently interviewed Henry K. Miller about his book about uh, The Lodger called The First True Hitchcock. And that's another one that, given its age, the idea that we can watch that film and uh, its condition is good and it's just unbelievable how much we know about its production. And, yes. you know, it's just by this point, Hitchcock, it, it, it's he's well his work is well served and it helps that uh, a book like yours, people can go and actually find the film without a lot of trouble and look at it well and they don't have to worry about condition and things like that so uh and of course turner classic movies in this country makes these things available too you're right and in fact that's you can't go more than a few weeks on turner classic movies before they do a uh, a retrospective hitchcock and then of course criterion collection and criterion channel here in the states they have a lot of the old british uh hitchcocks including the lodger and they're all in great condition and they look good. So you get a chance to continue to, to view these films as, as is what other kind, what, what are your other personal Hitchcock favorites? I mean, obviously this one is, is number one. Um, I think notorious and I think rear window for me are proximate. Um, partly because, you know, they, they, they ask some related questions um, I think they reward updated viewing on a regular basis. So those are two that, but you know, there's so many. And, and, and I think that, um, I, you know, it, it, so I, I don't tend to look at the, the, the late, late Hitchcock films, you know, Frenzy or, you know, they, and I kind of feel like I should a little bit more, but I, I'm, I'm not so interested in, I mean, I am interested, I suppose, a bit in, in contextualizing shadow within Hitchcock's output, but I'm also interested in, I guess linking the film to other developments in 1940s cinema and a period in which there might have been more license to uh, give us complicated portrayals of female um, agency than we have in other periods at times. I, I wouldn't want to overstate that, but one of the things that I'm I'm sort of talking about in the book is the figure of the girl, you know, in this period. You know, girls in the in the World War II period, you know, were often um, differently or less parented than they would have been because of all the disruptions of of the wartime period. And I think you know we can talk about there was a social discourse in this period, for example, about 
um, juvenile girls who were getting up to stuff, right? Because they didn't have the kind of patriarchal controls that they normally would uh, in place. So I think that one of the things that makes Shadow, you know, a useful text for us is, is that it does stand in a particular position in relation to other Hitchcock films, but also that it gives us a kind of a rich slice uh, of, of representing some of the dilemmas and concerns of femininity in that period as well. So I'm trying to sort of, um, you know, in the book, argue that a little bit as, as you know, as, mm-hmm. as, as much as I can in, in a book that's, um, you know, a single film study. I'm not sort of doing that fully, but I'm, I'm making certain gestures, I hope. Right. And of course, um, you know, as you point out, I mean, during the period, you know, we're right in the middle of uh, Hollywood in, in, in all of its Hollywood at the period. And yet yeah. we have a film where at the end, nobody lives happily ever after. Um, yes, the, the, the killer gets his comeuppance, which, you know, has to happen in, in this period. But um Nobody comes out of it in particularly any better than they were going in, at least in a way. I mean, as you point out, and in, as you've also mentioned, that Charlie becomes, in many ways, takes on even more of the um, attitudes of her uncle by the end, based on yeah. what she went through. I think so. And I think the fact that Charles says so resonantly, you know, he talks about the world as being a foul sty and things like this, and his his deep despair is nihilism. Uh, are, are really unrebutted by the end of the movie. So it's quite a dark, uh, you know, conclusion that's that's only minimally disguised by the sort of, you know, the sunny uh, world of, of, of Santa Rosa. So, yeah, I, I think for me, that's that's kind of the richness of it. And um, just the, 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 the kind of the sense that uh, the film is willing in, in ways that would be maybe less frequent in later eras of Hollywood history to really interrogate uh, family life and its repressions and its silences. And, you know, I'm hard pressed to think of a contemporary film that is willing to do quite so much to excavate that complexity. I I think it's quite a rare thing. And that, again, is one of the reasons why I thought the film, you know, warranted, um, you know, book length treatment. Well, like I say, it's it's a really great study of a film that, uh, and these are the kind of studies that are these days are really great because we get them and sometimes they're longer studies and sometimes they're they're more compact studies like yours and yet uh, as you point out it's it would be a it's a great idea for anybody that's either interested in the film or might be teaching it or teaching Hitchcock to look at as far as getting some ideas of of how best to to uh, look at Hitchcock as a filmmaker and and many of the aspects of what he did as far as these kind of things and the whole issue related to uh hitchcock and women and and that whole issue and this film as we pointed out seems to uh be an, a useful study in in these in these concepts well my hope is that it, it is teachable that it was really shaped uh to be that way and I hope that the book reflects the teaching that I've done with it over the years. And, uh, and, and I hope that it would help, um, you know, students who are trying to think about how to put uh, all the different parts of a film together that I, I'm hoping that the book models 
that task, right? What do we do analytically uh, with films in terms of, you know, film as a stylistic system, as, as an ideological uh, product, you know, as, as a historical um, text, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to model different modes of creative and critical uh, investigation. And then my hope is that, that that would be of interest, you know, certainly in the case of this film, but, but it's also hopefully a blueprint for how one goes about that with other films too. Well, like I say, we, I always say this at the end of interviews, because I still, it's always true. I think we only scratched the surface and, but hopefully gave enough information and talked enough that people will show to get a chance to, to not only read the book, but more just as important is to get a chance to review the film or watch it for the first time, especially if yeah. you're not used to, if, if it's one of Hitchcock's, even though it's considered a good, a great film, but it's being missed somehow because of the period it was or, or aspects. But, uh, I think, uh, this is definitely a great blueprint for, 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 uh, understanding the film even better. And we haven't even talked about film you know so much of it as far as light yeah. and shadow and direction and, and and plenty of other issues so there's plenty in the book that i think depending on how a, a teacher or anyone is interested in film wants to study it uh there's plenty there to use so i've been speaking with diane negra who is a professor of film studies and screen culture at the university college of dublin um and author of the book shadow of a doubt um, I really appreciate the time you gave me. Um, I know that uh, this is a great book that has been part of you for many, many years, and I'm glad it finally got a chance to to be completed. Thank you, Joel. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks. My thanks to Diane. I hope you enjoyed our interview, and we'll now look at Shadow of a Doubt in a new light. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.